As I was walking over here this evening to uh, the main building here, I was struck by the beauty of this evening. I don't know if any of you saw the, the moon this evening, that crescent and then just a few stars. And yes, the cold, crisp air, slight breeze. So beautiful, though. It's really quite touching. I think for me, it really is a... It's a beautiful night tonight on this planet, planet Earth. And yes, as it has always been, it's a, a troubled planet. And so beautiful in so many ways. Even while I was sitting here, uh, as all of us were arriving, even the, the silence right now, have you ever noticed when you slow down with the silence, not just the silence of the absence of sound, but you know the silence I'm talking about, like it's underneath sound. It's still there, even when there's sound. There's a beauty to it for me. It feels like something so beautiful. Can you hear the beauty? Can you feel that beauty in this silence that we're holding together? I actually find it so moving just to linger with and to love such silence because it is so beautiful. It it touches and moves my heart. Maybe this too, just this is what this path is about as well just to behold beauty, to savor it, to linger with it. And tonight, this is what I'd like to share some reflections with you about, which is about beholding beauty, savoring it, lingering with it. And the place of that on this path, how it's, at least the way I've I've seen it and tasted it, so intertwined with the unfolding of this path. To do just what we were doing, if you had a sense of that silence, of lingering and beholding beauty. You know, in the early Buddhist texts, uh, there are these accounts of either a monk or a nun or a practitioner being moved by beauty. For example, there's a, a passage where uh, the Venerable Mahakasapa, he's, he's a forest-dwelling monastic, so he's practicing in, on this forested land. And he's taking in the, the beauty that's surrounding him, the beauty of nature. So in, in one sutta, this comes from the Theragata. I just want to share with you a few lines of... Uh, what he's experiencing and and what he expresses. He says, strewn with garlands of the musgroves tree, these regions are so delightful, so lovely, echoing the trumpeting of elephants. These rocky crags delight my heart. Glistening, they look like blue storm clouds with waters cool, and streams so clear and covered all in ladybugs. These rocky crags delight my heart. The rain comes down on the lovely flats in the mountains frequented by seers. Echoing the cries of peacocks, these rocky crags delight my heart.
for me, these words uh, capture and, and, and bring into my heart this image of this practitioner, this, this monastic who's simply opening his heart to the beauty around him, just lingering with that. I, I find that striking. <laughs> this too is in these early Buddhist texts that, is, that have been given to us that are, that are conveying something about this path and this practice. So just to put it in a little uh, a bigger context here, hopefully you've heard, you know, us teachers up here, we've been offering these reflections to you again and again about freeing these hearts and minds. Uh, primarily what we've been talking about through cultivating this capacity to be with dukkha. You know, the, the big manifestations of that and also the, the subtle manifestations of challenge and difficulty and not to avoid or turn away but to open to be with to notice it and this for me has been so much of the path is is allowing the heart to have the capacity to be with such experience more and more and more in this, this place of stability and what I, I want to emphasize tonight that a part of freeing these hearts and minds, it's also cultivating this capacity to be with the beautiful or, in other words, the wholesome. And this is just as important, and at least what I've noticed, it can be just as challenging as being with dukkha. And I've noticed that my capacity to be with beauty is so intertwined with my capacity to be with challenge. And I've noticed this in others, too. When, when my capacity to be with challenge is small, so is my capacity to be with beauty. And when one is rather large and expansive, so is the other. And I find them to support each other. Wow, when, when I can take in beauty, it like provides a stability for this heart and mind to take in dukkha. There's one example of this that I find inspiring. It's a, a, it's a part of the life story of Adi Rinpoche. Adi Rinpoche was one of the great Tibetan practitioners of the 20th century. He was uh, a lineage holder in the uh, Drukpa uh, Kagyu lineage. And uh, he was the, the teacher of Sokni Rinpoche. Some of you might know Sokni Rinpoche. And his, uh, there's, there's actually a, a book about him called uh, Freedom and Bondage. And he was imprisoned for uh, 15 years uh, in a Chinese prison as a result of the Chinese invasion of, of Tibet. And before he had been captured by the Chinese, he was, uh, right before that, he was with a group of other Tibetans who were as many were doing during this time, attempting to flee across the, the, the Himalayas to safety. And remember, he's a reincarnate Lama. He's, uh, he's a Rinpoche. Really, the Chinese often were targeting uh, reincarnate Lamas. And during this time, as they were traveling, they were actually being chased by the Chinese. The Chinese literally were trying to hunt them down, and often they would be being shot at. And Adi Rinpoche recounted this time, he was speaking about because they were, they were, you could say they were on the run for about two years, and he said, during the two years that I was on the run, fleeing from one place after another, from time to time I would pass through an area where the early masters of the Kagyu lineage and other great masters of the past had stayed. High up in the mountains, I would sometimes visit retreat hermitages that were blessed by great practitioners. Arriving arriving at such places, I felt, okay, I'm being chased now, but so what? Let whatever happens, happens. It was so wonderful just to be able to visit such sacred places.
Isn't that interesting? I mean, here he is being hunted down and then his attention is going all over the landscape and knowing that there are these places where the great masters had practiced. He felt blessed by this. Do you hear how his heart, even in the midst of danger, is taken in such beauty and rejoicing in it? This ability to find beauty in the midst of challenge seems to be so important. And it's not denying challenge. Instead, it's finding the beauty in the midst of it. And this is a whole process that I want to say. The process of learning to cultivate the capacity to be with beauty. And for many of us, it doesn't come naturally, this ability to linger with and savor and deeply soak in the beautiful without getting lost in clinging or craving or fear. And I can definitely say this is uh, something that definitely did not come naturally for me. It's something that I've needed to train and to practice. To practice opening and surrendering to beauty. The poet Alison Luterman, uh, I, I feel she gives words to this challenge that I'm speaking to, the challenge of really fully opening to beauty when it's here. In particular, you're going to hear in this poem, she's, I, I feel like she's giving words uh, coming from this voice that feels afraid to fully open to the beautiful, which can be a common thing. So the first line of this poem from this voice I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. Have you ever noticed this? Somebody begins to deepen calmness, tranquility. And then some kind of small worry or concern arises. Watch out, you might get attached. Be dangerous. <laughs> Should I be doing this? It's really just worry or fear. Or sometimes the scaredness can arise as grasping or wanting to keep it rather than simply savor it. So that's how she begins. I- I'm scared. I'm scared to confess the happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. I find this a a great narration of at least how my mind can feel when it's worried about fully opening to happiness or in the context here, fully opening to beauty. It's a challenge to confess to it. And do you hear the turn in the poem? Just that last line. But for just this moment... I want what I have for just this moment. Oh, here it is, contentment, this deeper happiness. To linger with that, that's so different than being afraid to confess. I 
I, I want to uh, point out that sometimes this habit of the mind, or, or what I think it is, a habit of uh, our physiology, it's because for, for many, our physiology is in a nearly continual threat response. Maybe not a high threat response, but kind of a, a low-grade threat response that manifests in this feeling of always being just a little bit on guard, and many people uh, that, that research this feel like, especially modern living, seems to do this to our nervous systems. And then when one begins to relax into and savor a pleasant experience, what happens? If that's the, the default, the, the system's going to feel threatened, right? Because cause what it is is that when there's relaxation, then it can feel like, oh, I'm letting down my guard, and this doesn't feel safe. So then what does the physiology do? It just, it just jacks up the nervous system just a little bit so it can feel safe, so it can be a little bit on guard. There's really just a subtle reactivity that's happening. I think this is one of the reasons why it's a training. It's a training for my physiology sometimes to learn to open to beauty in a skillful way. Like there's a back and forth to it. It's not just going to happen one day and then boom, I can fully savor. It's like I'm, I'm training my physiology to have this capacity to be with, to settle down into beauty. To notice, oh, oh, I can be safe here too rather than keep up the guard and have a sense of reactivity. And the particular training uh, that I want to speak to tonight is uh, around a particular facet of beauty, and that's the beauty of our hearts. In particular, specific qualities of a heart and mind that are so beautiful. The Buddha speaks about these, these uh, uh, sobhana chetasikas, these, these uh, qualities of heart that are sobhana, beautiful. And I want to slow down with just uh, two of these trainings of opening to beauty that, uh, that we find the Buddha giving to us in these, these early Buddhist texts. For the first one, kind of embodied by this term, kalyana silo. So kalyana is sometimes translated as good, but it, it can easily, just as easily be translated as beautiful. And then silo, it's a, a, it derives from sila. So it's uh, one's beautiful ethical con- conduct, one's beautiful ethical actions and intentions. And the Buddha has this description of wise people savoring their beautiful actions. He says, when wise people sit on their chair or bed or rest on the ground, the beautiful actions that they did in the past, beautiful bodily, verbal, and mental actions, they cover them, these actions, overspread them and envelop them. Just as the shadow of a great mountain peak in the evening covers, overspreads, and and envelops the earth, so too when wise people sit on their chair or bed or rest on the ground, then the beautiful actions that they did in the past, beautiful bodily, beautiful verbal, beautiful mental actions, cover them overspread them, and envelop them. This is a kind of pleasure and joy that a wise person feels in this life. Do you hear this quality of savoring? It sounds to me so sensual and delicious. 
I'm like just allowing this beauty of past actions just to pervade my body, to envelop me, to cover me. And how pleasurable that is and how joyful that is. This is confessing to happiness. This is opening to beauty. And this is a particular practice that we don't talk enough about, I think, on retreat is uh, these uh, practices of recollection, nusati, like sila nusati is, is the practice of recollecting one's beautiful ethical actions so that you can allow them to cover you, overspread the entire body. The Buddha encourages us, us to engage in this practice. So how to engage in this. It's really taking time to savor the beautiful things that you're doing every day. To really have some time. I do this before I go to bed. What are the good things that I did today? I mean, if your mind's like mine... It does such a good job of knowing the bad things I did today, the unskillful things. Like that list can come up so easily. It has that skill down, but it's the other skill that's onward leading. Can you take some time every day just to do this? to savor the beautiful things that you did today. If you had a moment of mindfulness, just one, maybe all the rest weren't mindful, just one, that's a beautiful moment. I mean it. A moment of kindness, a moment of compassion. Maybe there were some moments of mudita this afternoon. What would it be like to savor that? Wow, I did a good thing today. It's so beautiful. Or in terms of ethics, I, I offered these uh, the other yogis today silence. Even if you ended up speaking to two or three yogis, the rest of the day you were silent. <laughs> That's still good. <laughs> Got those few moments. It's so important to land that. And the other good, great thing about reflecting on one sila is I get to rejoice in all the things I didn't do today. There are so many unskillful things I didn't do today. So many. I love thinking about it. I haven't yelled at anyone yet. That's pretty cool. Not lied yet. I don't know what's going to happen when I get back with my fellow teachers, but the most of the day has been great. Sila. And to notice how good that feels. You've done many good things today. I know someone wanted to make a bumper sticker that said, Lord, help me accept the truth about myself, no matter how good it is. But even when I share this with you, can you notice? Because I know this has been really difficult. When I invite you to do this, there can be like, ooh, ah, I don't know about this. It stretches the heart. You need to build capacity for the heart to take in beauty. So that you can sit in a chair or lie in a bed and allow it to overspread the entire body. And allowing it to be a sensual bodily experience. This is about pleasure. The pleasure of beauty. It's a wholesome pleasure that the Buddha is really clear about that's onward leading. And this, just this has been such a a game changer for me. To learn, because I didn't learn, I didn't know this skill before practice. To have the skill and the ability to appreciate myself. It really is so beautiful. Really to learn how to love myself. And to notice that there's a, a good heart in here.
So just a, a, I want to take a time just for a little bit of a caveat, just a little bit of a tangent here, because there can be a question that comes up around such a practice that I'm inviting you to do, which is, uh, well, isn't this practice of reflecting on my uh, the good deeds of the day, isn't this going to create a sense of self? And the answer to that is, yes, it is going to create a sense of self. It's going to create a beautiful sense of self. And in, if you really look at the Buddhist path, there are many aspects of this path where there is a sense of self being cultivated. Sila Nusati. Dana Nusati. It's to, to reflect on the generosity one is engaged in every day. Loving kindness for myself, or I'm learning how to love myself. Compassion for myself. So how to understand this? As was mentioned before, um, the, the psychologist uh, Jack Engler had this quote uh, that somebody, I think, uh, shared. You have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And interestingly, he changed it later on. He had the same exact article, and he changed it to being somebody and being nobody. That when I'm engaging in practice, there is cultivating a sense of self that allows for a stability so that this practice can unfold. There's much more to that, so I, but I, I want to keep it simple. There's a place for this. To build a, a sense of self that's onward leading and eventually leads to letting go and freedom. And in some ways, just this phrase, being somebody and being nobody, captures in a simple way uh, the incredibly nuanced and brilliant and complex way the Buddha described the unfolding of this path of cultivation. Yet I want to I keep it simple, because I don't, I don't think the complexity is so helpful on long retreat, but there's something important about just acknowledging this being somebody and being nobody. Really, if you were to examine it, they're just two different ways of perceiving. That's all they are. And yes, one of them, perceiving a sense of self, tends to arise out of a reactivity of greed, hatred, or delusion. So out of that, out of grasping or clinging or aversion, boom, there I am. Oh, I'm the one that's having a really hard time with this sound or this pain in my knee. Here I am. And this is what we've been inviting you to notice, how there's this birth of a sense of self around reactivity. And what I want to point out is that the mind can perceive a sense of self, at least around parts of this path, in a way that leads to letting go, leads to awakening, like what I just mentioned. And the mind can perceive not-self in a way that leads to letting go and leading to awakening. And of course, we've been emphasizing the latter because it's so powerful to start to disentangle all the identification that creates suffering. It's so essential. So both being somebody and being nobody. Maybe one other thing about this. It's just important to know, like the heart of freedom that the Buddha is talking about is deeper than both of these ways of perceiving. Both of these ways of perceiving are the vehicle to deep letting go, to deep freedom. Okay, so we have the first realm that I've been inviting you to savor beauty, to, to really open to beauty to linger with it, which is to appreciate yourself, to practice this every day. And it's like any other practice. Sometimes it's going to be easy, sometimes it's going to be difficult. 
And now the second realm that I want to share with you about some reflections on around savor and beauty. There's this, again, an interesting phrase using this word, samadisa kalyana kusolo. And it's one who is skilled in the beauty of samadhi. Samadhi is really beautiful. And I'd like to broaden this to really the beauty of any wholesome quality of heart and mind that are swimming around an experience that are ari- that's arising in experience every so often. To take in not just the noticing, but taking the beauty of these qualities of heart that are arising in your practice. Whether that's when the mind feels really calm and collected and still and there's a bright mindfulness, to notice how beautiful that is. All the way to when there might be like fear or maybe agitation in the mind. And... There's a sense of compassion that just arises or a sense of kindness. So just like with Adi Rinpoche, just in the middle of challenge, there can still be beauty arising. Can you notice that? So a way of entering into this realm of this, uh, this, uh, this beauty of these qualities of heart that are arising in, in your practice is really around this, this framework of, of the seven factors of awakening. These seven beautiful qualities of heart. They really are so beautiful. The beauty of mindfulness, the first one, and then the second one, investigation, or sometimes I like to use Curiosity, sometimes that primes it for me. The third, energy. The fourth, joy or delight. The fifth, tranquility. The sixth, samadhi. And the last one, equanimity. I'll put out, uh, I'll put a, post it on the board and then there'll be little sheets if you want a copy of these seven factors so you can play with what I'm going to be proposing here. And I want to point out, probably for all of you, these are sprouting up at times, probably almost every day, on retreat here. And maybe at times they're really faint and really brief, but there they are. They're they're like these tender shoots, maybe sometimes, of flowers emerging in the spring. So I'd like to share with you how to specifically practice with this teaching of the Seven Factors Awakening. And hopefully you're going to hear how it is cultivating the capacity to be with beauty. And I want to speak about two skills involved in this, which the, the Buddha talks about. Like in the, you know, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about the seven factors of awakening. So these are two of the, the three skills that the Buddha is referring to. The first one is just recognizing them. Recognizing when these beautiful qualities of heart are there. And then the second skill is nourishing them. And the image that I use to help me get a sense of, of this whole realm is it, uh, it reminds me of a self-retreat my partner and I were doing on this remote, uh, in this remote wilderness area. That's a juniper pinyon forest. And there was one time we were there, we've been going there actually for a number of years now, and it was, this time was early spring, and so there was a few, few years ago, and there were, before this time, there were two previous years, two consecutive years of really severe drought. And at the end of our uh, retreat, and during a retreat, we're, we do these ceremonial offerings of merit, sharing the merit through water offerings to the land. And I remember, so it's early spring, and there were these tiny little flowers, really, in this really this dry, arid environment, that were beginning to just emerge out of the, the dry, arid earth. And it was such a moving experience to be walking around and just to be watering them wherever I found them. 
I was recognizing them because they're really small and I was nourishing them. So I just want to point out that, that I find these skills especially important if your heart has been drought-stricken in the past, to have these skills, to, to nurture and nourish the tiny flowers that are still emerging. Okay, so how to, how to practice with these. I'm going to actually have you take some time in just a few minutes to sense into your experience because I want to show to you how accessible this teaching is. It can be so accessible. And I'll briefly go over the seven factors just to remind you of them. I think uh, all the other teachers so far, we've been, I, I think we've covered all of these at least to some extent. And I, I want to express my gratitude to the Venerable Analio for this approach because uh, what I appreciate about it, his approach is making it so simple and accessible, which I find really helpful when I'm practicing. And remember, there's a whole range and depth to them, but I, I want to give a hopefully an easy entry here. So again, just a reminder about these seven factors of awakening to recognize them. Mindfulness. Hopefully you know that factor. (laughs) This is the sound of my voice. It arises and it passes away. Just the knowing of that, the noticing of that. And then there's investigation. And again, I, I like to keep these terms simple when I'm practicing. So for me... Investigation just means having a simple curiosity. It could be as simple as the noticing of the sound of my voice. It arises and it passes away. That It's marked by impermanence. It comes and goes. And then there can be a curiosity about its nature like that, how it comes and goes. Sometimes that sound of my voice lingers and sometimes not. Interesting. Things come and go. Energy. Again, to me, I keep it simple. Oh, there's some energy to practice right now. I can feel that right now. Joy, this word piti. I like to use the word delight. It's the delight of the delight in practicing. Oh, it's so delightful to practice. Tranquility. That whole range, a sense of calm. Samadhi, Rebecca gave a a whole Dharma talk about this, the the mind's ability to collect and unify. And equanimity, just to keep it simple, just some okayness with experience, which I can also notice is there when I'm not feeling okay about what's what's arising. And then I'm just okay with not being okay. I'm going to ring the bell here, and what I invite you to do is just to open to sound. And I'll just refer back to these words and to notice if you can notice the tiny little flowers, the little sprouts that can be here, just as you're opening to sound. Right there, the tiny flower of mindfulness. Maybe becoming curious about the quality of the sound, how it arises and passes. And you might notice just a little bit of energy to practice. There might be a little bit of delight. Sometimes you need to invite that one, coax it a little bit. Do you notice any tranquility? Samadhi. Mind's a little bit collected.
And if you linger, you might hear, you might feel within the experience of hearing a bit of equanimity. Can you get a little bit of a taste of how simple this can be? It might feel like these qualities are kind of just in the mix of the meditative experience. And it's true, sometimes a few need a little bit of an invitation from our heart to be there. But it's just an invitation to, when, just at times, for example, when there's a little bit of calmness or steadiness of the mind, to check it out, to go through the list a little bit and to feel them within that experience. They don't have to be huge blossoming flowers. They can just be little tiny sprouts. They need your kind attention because actually that first skill of just recognizing them, they love that. It's nourishing them when you recognize them. So at times it's going to feel like they're in the mix of experience. And at other times it can feel like they're building on each other. So, for example, those of you who are familiar with Anapanasati Sutta, there's a kind of sequential unfolding to them. One isn't better than the other. It's just getting a sense of how they are. Sometimes you can get a sense of them individually as if they're strands within a whole tapestry. Or sometimes when I'm sensing into this, where I'm pausing with this, it can feel like there's a whole gestalt, a whole felt sense when all the seven factors of awakening are there. And as I said, it's okay to invite them a bit. There's some mindfulness, but I notice that the curiosity is a little quiet, so I, I allow myself to become curious. I invite a little bit of delight to be there in practicing. Invitations are okay. You can give invitations to these beautiful friends of yours to be there. So again, how to explore this on your own? It's, it's just whenever the mind's, as I said, feeling more easeful and steady to check this out, to bring some distinguishing to these qualities of heart that create that meditative experience, just in this simple way. And I want to mention For some practitioners, it can be really common, I want to normalize this, that when, if you haven't practiced with the seven factors of awakening, it can feel a little bit clunky or unnatural. And what can come with that is a sense of irritation or frustration. That's what comes when you learn something new. So just an invitation to be patient with this. And then it will have a, a sense of fluidity, I think, over time. And also, uh, make sure not to assume that they're not there because uh, your meditation is feeling like it's a mess for a lot of the day. Have you noticed that you can have like a morning where it's like hindrance central, like big time, and then in the afternoon it's like, whew, it's like, oh, the mind settled. Sometimes we can make big stories about these big changes in practice. They're just different worlds that the mind's inhabiting at different times. And then the, the, the second skill, nourishing the factors. As I said, they're going to arise much more just by recognizing them. They, they love your attention. And the second way is, is going back to what I've been saying again and again. Can you linger with, can you behold, just recognize there's something beautiful here when I'm practicing. For example, even when you're doing walking meditation, as you're feeling the soles of your feet, the pressure and the lack of pressure, that movement of that, just noticing, oh, here's some, maybe just a couple of the seven factors of awakening. Oh, here's a little bit of calm. Here's a little bit of mindfulness. Wow, this is beautiful. Just that. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Just the opening to that. 
And when they're more steady or when you're having strong experiences of both mindfulness and samadhi together and it really feels like the seven factors of awakening are strong, to really linger there. Sometimes I'll get a question from yogis. It's a common question, you know. Oh, you know, there's a lot of tranquility, kind of a lot of samadhi, and I, I, I'm just coasting along. It's just like, but I, I wonder if you could tell me what I should be doing now. Like I, you know, I, I sometimes worry I should be working on my issues or challenges. I'm not too sure what to do when the mind is quiet and tranquil. And the analogy I'd like to give if you're in that space and that question starts to arise, it's kind of like asking yourself, well, when you see a beautiful flower, what do you need to do? All you need to do is linger with that beautiful flower. All you need to do is savor that beautiful flower. That's all you need to do. Allow the flower to continue to do what it's skilled at doing. Appreciate them. Because if your mind's like my mind, what can start to happen is, is it can be like, oh, I need to try to extract something from such flowers. Or sometimes it's like the mind says something silly to those flowers. I'm so sorry, I don't have time for you because I need to work out my issues and my challenges. <laughs> I do want to point out, sometimes our great desire to work out our challenges and issues is a hindrance in our practice to beholding beautiful flowers. So again, recognizing and nourishing these beautiful flowers, these like seven factors of awakening. I've given you these two ways tonight of beholding beauty. Can you open up to the skillful, beautiful things that you've done today? And during the day, can you appreciate these beautiful flowers that are sprouting? Can you nourish them with your love? I find this important for me in my own practice because sometimes what can happen in my practice is that it's like my mind can get uh, tight around this framework that the Buddha does give, that the only thing he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. It's a great framework. I like it. (laughs) I wouldn't be up here if I wasn't into it. But I love to play with that too, to mix things up for my mind, because my mind can sometimes narrow this path and this practice. What would it be like to, to behold, what would it be like to, to get a sense of what we're doing here as simply beholding beauty and bringing beauty into the world? Nothing else. That I bring beauty into the world because it's beautiful. Maybe there's value to that too in living. To behold beauty, to bring it into the world. There's a poem by W.S. Merwin, which I, I feel like embodies this. place. He says, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. On the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. What for? Not for the fruit. The tree that bears the fruit is not the one that was planted. I want the tree that stands in the earth for the first time with the sun already going down and the water touching its roots in the earth full of the dead and the clouds passing one by one over its leaves.
maybe this can give meaning to your practice, the willingness just to plant a tree, a beautiful tree on whatever day it is, possibly the last day of the world. So may our hearts be filled with beauty for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Just sit for a a moment here. So again, a reminder, there'll be, once again, chanting tonight, and then there'll be the the late night sitting as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.